Welcome along everyone to another of Shared Ireland's podcasts. Today we'll be having a conversation with independent senator, ex-president of the Ulster Farmers Union and business development manager at the Institute for Global Food Security in Queen's University, Ian Marshall. Welcome Ian. Thank you. Ian, you're a farmer and come from that background, so um, I don't want to hear too much complaining from you today like the rest of the farmers. That would be an awful pity to break from tradition. <laughs> Indeed. Ian, can you tell me a little bit about your farming background and growing up in South Armagh? Yeah, it was a, it was a good upbringing in a Presbyterian farming family in South Armagh, third child of, of uh, four children of two brothers and one sister with a great up upbringing my, my mother was a school teacher for 36 years oh, and primary uh, or second primary school primary. teacher did yeah. she teach you no she did which is is hard for both <laughs> your mother and you as a, a student <laughs> exactly i can imagine <laughs> definitely, definitely so it was a good upbringing it was a, a family farm uh, and we uh, you know with dairy dairy cows beef enterprise a few sheep but it was very much your traditional farm model with mixed cropping and that type of thing so mm -hmm. A very good upbringing, a privilege to be brought up in that sort of a, a home life. Mm -hmm. Very good. Um, you were elected um, to the 25th Senate on the 27th of April in 2018, which is nearly a year ago. Was politics something you always wanted to get into? You? Well, politics was something I was always interested in. I was always interested in, in influencing decisions, making change and making an impact. And you have to remember where I came from. As an eighteen-year-old, I was brought to my first farmers' union meeting by a, an elderly neighbour, a, a mature neighbour, mm -hmm. and he brought me and he, he told me I'd need to get involved with these type of organisation, lobbying groups, and, and agricultural lobbying. And I went to the meeting and I came out of it and I thought, my goodness, that's horrendous. That's old whinging, whinging farmers. I'll not be back. And he he asked me what I thought of it, and I told him words to that effect. No, he said you will be back. And to be fair to him, he took me back, and we kept kept going back to those meetings. So it was, it was from age about 18 that I started to become involved in, in the politics side of it, but very much in the agricultural space. Yeah. And then progressed through the organisation, became part of committees and different groupings in the organisation to get up to the point where in 2011 I was elected as a, a vice president and then subsequently was elected as, as president. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in the years that you were elected president, what... What change did you make or, you know, what was, what are you most proud of, shall I say? I suppose when, when we look at that, I was appointed during my term as part of a, a board called an Agri-Food Strategy Board. Mm -hmm. And effectively that was about driving change to the industry and we were looking at different things. So the, our, our ambitions out of that were to set up land management uh, uh, strategy. It was to deliver a food marketing body and was to look at livestock genetic improvements. So those three elements of it were the important parts of it. But fundamentally, it was bringing the industry together to get it more vertically integrated, to make it more sustainable, because ultimately, especially in the Northern Ireland context, farming is very much about family. Mm -hmm. And farming is about our heritage, it's in our DNA, it's a way of life. Yeah. So it's hugely important that we have a sustainable, profitable, vibrant industry. And that's particularly difficult when you have things like food deflation, and that the, the, the relative importance of food in anybody's total spend becomes less and less significant for mm -hmm. them. So I think in, in the period it was there to, to make sure that, that farmers' interests were well represented, both apartment buildings in London and in Brussels, that's satisfying. And it's satisfying when you have to steer 
an organisation or an industry through a crisis. Mm-hmm. We had a serious crisis, not in a dairy crisis, where businesses were effectively going to the wall. There just wasn't the money coming in to pay the bills and, and keep the household. Mm-hmm. So to work with farmers who are under immense pressure and stress, who are very passionate about their businesses and very proud, mm-hmm. and it's a big part of our industry is being very proud about that industry, to work with those farmers and try and steer and plot a path through to get them through a crisis and out to better times on the other side, mm-hmm. that's satisfying. I suppose in your tenure as president of the Ulster Farmers Union, did the RHI um, crop up in your tenure or was that slightly after? No, that would have been started and initiated, I suppose, come to the end of my tenure. Yeah. The interesting thing is because we operated in that organisation, the union, across 14 different committees. Uh-huh. So as president, you don't really focus on any It's more it's the higher strategic stuff yes. that you do. Okay. So uh, that was happening, was going on in the organisation. I had nothing directly to do that part yeah. of it. But yeah, at that time, sort of the tail end of my tenure. From, from listening to people as we all do and out socialising and at football matches you know it's impacted obviously people's lives people taking out loans from banks and you know doing it for genuine reasons to further their business what's the type of stories and feedback you've been getting from people on the ground yeah exactly the vast amount of people that got involved in RHA were genuine people who saw a business opportunity and for the right reasons yeah the disappointing thing for me is that, especially in the very early days, they were sold out and hung out as some sort of group of villains or yeah. criminals or people who were going to defraud the taxpayer of money. Uh, which obviously I'm sure there was one or two there, there was. individuals I, I, that seen an opportunity yeah. and took it, which is natural in every walk of life, I suppose. That's, that's right. But I think the disappointing thing, and there's a couple of disappointing things specifically about RHA that, that really I, I struggle with. A, it was used as political capital. So for whatever means by whatever party was political capital in an RHA crisis or an RHA story. And the second thing was this vilification of genuine, good, honest, upstanding people who got involved in it. Yeah. You know, so that that was damaged. And actually, that that has stuck. And there's a stigma with RHA. There's a huge sense of embarrassment by those who entered into something in good faith. That's right. And who were really hung out to dry. And I think that, that, that has really disappointed me because it was... I think history will show it that there was huge mistakes made in our political arena. Yeah. There were mistakes made in civil service. Hindsight's a wonderful thing, and with the benefit of hindsight, this never would have happened. But it did happen, and the unfortunate thing is that everybody was trying to pass the buck yeah. and blame the people that actually went to their banks, borrowed money, and invested in good faith. Mm-hmm. But you know, hopefully, the disappointing thing, the thing I'm concerned about, is we still have targets to meet. Yeah. And if I went to any business in Northern Ireland now and said, let's Let's invest in, in renewable technology. Let's invest in this. And you know what? The government will support this. Mm-hmm. You get a fairly short shift. I'm sure you would, rightfully so. Yeah. yeah. Just moving back to your uh, appointment uh, to the Senate. What has your first year been like to date? First year has been a fantastic experience. Remember living in South Armagh and focusing on Northern Irish politics for most of my life. You didn't actually know what very much of what went on south of the border. Yeah. I spoke to a, a fellow senator who lives just on the other side of the border in County Cavan and, and he said when he went to go on his holidays they went out into the farmyard and turned right and went south. Mm-hmm. And in a similar vein in South Armagh with my family when we went on holidays in the north we went out to the farmyard and turned left and went north. Yeah. So we hadn't much connection to the border mm-hmm. and I suppose one of the interesting stories that I tell is that when I was asked 
to go up to meet the, the Taoiseach. Uh, I actually had to look at Google Maps to see where Leinster House was. Okay. Because I, I didn't know where Leinster House was. <laughs> right. But then, why, why would I? True. So, as I say, that was a, a baptism of fire to go into to find out what find out and read up and see what Leinster House was about, what the numbers of TDs were like, what the senators were like, what the makeup of government was like. Can I ask you who first run the idea past you or who approached you? Uh, interestingly, in my term as president of the Farmers Union, I worked closely with the Agriculture Commissioner Phil Hogan. Okay. Who you have immense regard for. He's a, a man with big, big in stature, but he's a, he's a big politician. He's uh-huh. a strong individual. So I worked with, with Commissioner Hogan. I got a call to my office in Queensland University one day, horrible, rainy, miserable afternoon in Belfast. Uh-huh. And it was to say that I was expecting a call from the Taoiseach, Leo Veradker, who wanted to nominate me. To run the Shannon by election. It wasn't April Fool's Day or nothing. You didn't look at the calendar, did you? Well, I must admit, when you get that phone call, you, you do sort of wonder who's pulling my leg or yeah. am I that naive? But uh-huh. no, it was genuine. To be fair, you know, I had the conversation. Very good. Then. Yeah. Very good. And um, what what does a senator do? I suppose before you, by your own admission, there before you realised where Leinster House was. Um, for the, any of us that doesn't know. You're not elected people. You're, 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 you don't have to be elected to be a senator. Yeah, well, I suppose from my perspective, the interesting thing is that you, you actually are elected as a senator. Right. But it's not the process of, of people, so it's councils that elect you. Yes. So my election was actually different. It was, it was elected by TDs and senators. Uh-huh. So effectively, when I went up to Dublin, I had to be, begin a political campaign and lobby TDs and senators to and, introduce myself. And because you're not part of any political party, so it was basically down to you as yeah. Ian Marshall to go and lobby. Yeah. So and, and it, it was, I was reminded when I was first asked to do this that I was there because I was an Ulster Unionist from Northern Ireland. And I was I was made clear to me in certain terms that never hide behind it. Mm-hmm. We're proud of your identity. Yeah. You are what you are and you're here because of who you are. Uh-huh. So there was never any issue with that. So I, I had to go up and, and exactly say I had to lobby on my own merits mm-hmm. as an independent centre, mm-hmm. so I wasn't affiliated with any party. So went up and went through that process and tried to introduce myself to TDs and senators and uh, make them aware of who I was, what mm-hmm. I represented. And, uh, and I suppose to, to give you a, a sort of brief overview of what a senator does, effectively for anyone that knows the political structure in London, it's the same as the House of Lords, it's an upper house. In my opinion, what the function of that upper house is, is actually it's an oversight. It's a wise eye cast over a lower house. Uh-huh. It's something that I think is huge merit now. I know there's a big reform a discussion in the South about the role of the Senate, the function of senators. Uh-huh. So what you have, you have bills and laws and legislation that go through a lower house that are then passed to the upper house. The upper house can amend and change those laws. It uh-huh. can't actually block them or stop them. Mm-hmm. But it can amend and change and, and, and influence those laws. Mm-hmm. I think it actually works well because it takes sometimes the 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 passion and emotion that very often comes in a lower house. I see it in the doll where you have party politics that go on, mm-hmm. where it's it's pretty vocal, it's pretty animated, and sometimes when this legislation comes across the, the, the Senate, it's a it's a an eye cast over it to reflect on it, to interrogate it, to look at it, to see if it can be improved or made better. And it's interesting because it's one of the things that I think could be key in the Northern Irish context mm-hmm. about moving the discussion forward. Because if we look at Parliament buildings, we actually have a Senate chamber. We used to have senators. 
Mm-hmm. Um, when I look at the lower house, uh, the chamber in Parliament buildings, there's a lot of passion, there's a lot of emotion, but it's very much a green and orange charged politics. Yeah. And I look and say, well, is there something to say if we took people with business acumen, political acumen, academic acumen, and life skills, yeah. and put them into an upper house? Could we take a bit of the sting out of the and heat and emotion out of a lower house? Could we interrogate bills and laws and legislation and actually give support mm-hmm. and cover to a lower house where people are very much watching what the electorate always think about? Yeah, interesting. Tell me this, how do you think your appointment to the Senate has been received by the unionist community? Have they been largely supportive for you? Yeah, they have been largely supportive. Well, at least those people that have spoken on the face have been largely supportive. Yes. Uh, and it's quite interesting because I, I'm a bit like a long playing record in Dublin on this because most of my friends, my neighbours, the people who are, are what I would regard as moderate unionists, like myself, official unionist people, are actually very supportive of it. Because the majority of those people just want to get on with life and build careers and their kids through education and, and have a normal and a normal normalized life mm-hmm. and existence. So when I speak to those people, there are no issues. Interestingly, when I speak to the vast majority of our politicians, they're all supportive. Mm-hmm. But there's a nervousness with our politicians about coming out and actually saying mm-hmm. that to their electorate mm-hmm. because there's there's a degree of risk with with supporting me. But to be fair to them all, and I think you know, I was impressed by a number of them who privately said, "We support you. You're the right person. It's the right time." But you mentioned the word privately here. Privately, and that's the difference. And, and I suppose the interesting thing is, I, I'm an independent senator in Dublin. I'm not chasing votes and constituency. Mm-hmm. What you see is very much what you get. Mm-hmm. I have to respect those people, I suppose, who feel that because they're chasing votes and they have an electorate yeah. established very often, mm-hmm. that they have to appease them and maybe to come out publicly and support me. Mm-hmm. There is an element of risk for them. Mm-hmm. Okay. How does it feel to be the first Northern Unionist elected to the Senate? It's a huge honour and a privilege. And remember, I, I follow some some very strong individuals of John Robb, surgeon from, from Northern Ireland, from uh, Gordon Wilson, who lost his daughter in the Noma bombing. Uh, Lord Bally Edmund was, was one of my predecessors. Uh, Morris Hayes, Queen's University here. Yeah. So I'm following some fairly strong characters, some very some people who have immense respect for. So to go into that, and remember the difference, I suppose, fundamentally in my own uh, position and theirs is they were all appointed yeah. so I was the first one to be elected and yeah. it's, a, it's a huge honour and a privilege but on, on a number of counts it's a huge honour from my own perspective that they would put the faith in me to do that Absolutely. and it's a risk for those people that voted and supported me because they actually they put the cross on the card to say they endorsed it yeah exactly yeah. so it's a huge honour Sinn Féin supported your nomination Neil. did you find that strange? I, I suppose I in one sense, it did find a strange, but in another sense, I didn't. And I'll, I'll tell you exactly why. Because I know when I worked as president of the Farmers Union, you have to represent all communities, all Absolutely. farmers, irrespective of the religion. Yeah. That stays Michelle O'Neill was agriculture minister. Oh, and we built a good relationship. It was a rock-solid relationship about getting on with the business of running agriculture. Yes. So, And I always remember a conversation where we actually said, look, we're probably diametrically opposed here, but I had complete respect for her politics. She had complete respect for mine. We didn't have to agree with each other's mm-hmm. politics, but complete respect for each other. 
So in one sense, I wasn't surprised because I try to get on with everybody I work with mm-hmm. because I've always felt that, you know, you've got to understand the other person's perspective. Absolutely. And, and anyone that knows me will know that if I, I'm talking about this subject, I always refer to the Harper Lee novel, To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. Because that's the novel in Quinoticus Finch makes, says a line about to understand someone, you've got to understand, you've got to get inside their skin and walk around in it. Mm-hmm. And I always say that to people I work with, because even though you disagree with someone, try and understand things from their perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think that's hugely important. So as much as it was a shock, because I suppose there's an element of risk for Sinn Féin in this, to actually support an Ulster Unionist, mm-hmm. because there's some of that party would not support me mm-hmm. under any circumstance. Yeah. So I do, I do, uh, I was surprised, but I was pleasantly surprised that prepared, they were prepared to endorse me and support me. Mm-hmm. Very good. Would you like to continue your career in politics? Um, would you have a particular party in mind? Um, or is being an independent kind of like the perfect way to be in? At the moment, being an independent is the perfect way to be because you're not whipped. You say things as you see it. You can speak completely, truthfully and honestly at all times. Don't get me wrong, that's not without his criticism, and you will get criticism. You miss the cover of a party. You miss the support mechanisms of a party. And the machine behind it. Correct. However, I'm very fortunate in the Senate to be in a group of 10 independent senators. Yeah. We have a really, really strong group of independents, Mm. and actually 10 out of 60 of us, some becomes quite influential. Certainly. And it's it's a good group to be in. So at the moment, independence is is a good place to be. Okay, very good. Can I ask on a more personal note, Ian, what party would you traditionally have felt most comfortable with? Um, you know, what it have been the Alliance, the Austro Unionist, the DUP, Sinn Féin or the SDLP? Well, I think, well, well I, I'm no different to probably 99.9% of kids that grow up in Northern Ireland because, because we're not instructed in school about politics, the structures or the systems or the mechanisms. You generally come to the age of 17 or 18 and your, your first voting day uh-huh. and you say to your mother or father, so where to put my ex? <laughs> yes. And, and it's, that's, that's, that's disappointing, but that's the reality. So uh-huh. I was born into an official unionist household and was always an official unionist voter and supporter yeah. in the early days, going back, people like Harold McCusker, you know, you know so we've, we've gone through that with Jim Nicholson as an MEP in our local area, Danny Kennedy, uh-huh. huge amount of respect for Danny. Yeah. You know, so those were the people we identified with. Those were the people that we felt fell into that mm-hmm. strong unionist modern camp. Mm-hmm. Did you ever feel like getting involved in politics here in the north? It was, in, it was interesting because you'd imagine coming out of a, an agri politics background for the guts of thirty years that I would just fall naturally into that, and and actually I was approached and and. Uh, the interesting thing is, I've got the paperwork filled in in my filing cabinet for the Ulster Unions For party. the Ulster Unions yeah. party. The paperwork's filled in and signed, and the reason, and the one and only reason that was never returned to the party was because I hate green and orange politics. And the reality is, I see it in Northern Ireland, once you put your colours to a mast, you're pigeonholed. But could, could the argument not be said you could go in and try and change that? That, that is an argument and I've always said and I've said to people subsequently who are involved in politics in Northern Ireland you don't change this by setting up new parties you actually change it from within the existing the party existing ones. and that, that is right but to be honest I, I, I was looking at opportunities I had wherever at that stage I hadn't defined that I wanted to be involved in politics because mm-hmm. 
Politics is quite toxic in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. It takes over and consumes your life. Yeah. And it's not a decision for myself to go into politics without considering wife, kids, and everybody else that can be affected by yeah. this. Yeah. So at that point in time, it was a case of, no, let's just sit back and, and wait. Because at the moment, I'm strong in my unionist tradition. I'm strong in the values. And I don't need to be part of a political party at this point in time. Understood. How will Brexit impact the island of Ireland, in North and South? Big question, I understand. Big question, and interestingly, last week when we sat down with Angela Merkel, I was the person around the table that declared I was part of this small cohort of people who didn't actually think the UK were going to leave, that we were either going to see a very, very soft Brexit with customs union single market alignment, or we were going to have a position where they decided not to leave at all. Mm -hmm. And I stand by that today, and as I see time move on towards the end of the week, it'll be really interesting to see what happens on Friday. So what are you really saying that you don't think no, the I UK will leave? Let, let, let's wind the clock back. We had a referendum in 2016 that uh-huh. began with ideology. It began with fractures within the Tory party and the Prime Minister looked at galvanising that Tory party. Mm-hmm. The British people went to the electorate and they voted based on the information they had at hand. Correct. What we've learned since that is, firstly, there's a lot of misleading information and a lot of lies on both sides of this argument. Mm-hmm. We've also learned the allegation of dark money being fired. Well, that was, the, the, the more sinister side of it, mm. where there was serious money applied to this and, and capital to actually drive an agenda. And I think history will, will bear testament to that. And history will indicate how sinister mm-hmm. and dark a side of this will emerge. Mm-hmm. So we, we've had that. We had, a, we had a referendum where people based the decision on the information they had, and, mm-hmm. and it was a, a, a slim majority to, to decide to leave. I think when I look at that now, and remember, people say to me, oh, but it's disrespectful to consider a second referendum on this. Because this, I, I actually believe this could go to a position where there's an agreement in Parliament on some sort of deal which has to go to the people to be ratified. Mm-hmm. And actually that makes a lot of sense, because yeah. that gives people the opportunity to have a second call on this. And if you look, I've been criticised for, for that line, for being undemocratic. Yeah. But it's wholly democratic. We had a referendum three years ago. Three years on, it's completely an entirely democratic task question but but surely people would say and many would argue rightfully so you can't keep having an election or until you get the result that you choose to be the right one but but democracy dictates you can keep having an election every five years and change your mind every five years Mm -hmm. for in perpetuity yeah that's democracy this notion that that it's disrespectful to a referendum is an interesting one because actually I think we've demonstrated complete respect for referendum. For two and a half years, we've debated this and negotiated in local communities, at yeah. national level, mm-hmm. at European level, and this has gone back and forth. We have interrogated and negotiated this process to bits. So, a bit, so we're, in a better, we're in a better position yeah. now to make so, to make a, a yeah. A so choice. I, I think go back, present all the information as it is, and then ask the British people, mm-hmm. "What do you think?" And you know what? As a Democrat, if they still elect to leave which I personally don't think they will, because I think mm-hmm. we have to give them credit because they're more intelligent very often than they give them credit for. Correct. And I still think if they were given that position and they still elected to leave, well, then as a Democrat, I have to support that. Yeah. But that's completely different because that's open, transparent and fair, and that's a democratic process to take us out of the EU. That changes the discussion for the negotiation between Belfast and London, mm-hmm. between London and Dublin, between London and Brussels. Mm-hmm. It's completely different to where we are today. Mm-hmm. Do you think the DUP are on the wrong side of history here? Personally, I remember as an independent, this is a personal opinion. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. And I, th- I think this 
I think you, you have to remember the DUP's position is always about reinforcing and making sure that the union is galvanised and rock solid and will not fracture. The interesting thing is it's actually been compromised, I believe, in the last couple you, of years. You proudly are a unionist. Yeah. Do you think that the backstop poses a threat to your union? Uh, personally, I don't think the backstop presents that because I don't think we actually will get to that point uh -huh. where we'll have to, to do anything about that. My concern is for Northern Ireland. My concern is that for the business people in Northern Ireland who are genuinely concerned, and remember this is born out of a huge amount of uncertainty at the moment, mm -hmm. that I think we probably had an opportunity, but remember we've got to go, got to caveat this, I'm a Remainer so we never should leave. Mm -hmm. But if we leave, then certainly to have a deal or an arrangement in place where Northern Ireland could avail of both opportunities to be within Europe and feeding and supplying and being part of the UK. Mm -hmm. That's obviously would have presented an opportunity, but again, I go back to my, my opening point, I don't think we should leave. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Ian, you've been, this past few months that I'm aware of, Emily, you've been having meetings with civic society, uh, women's groups, uh, different types of uh, groups representing different sectors. What have you taken away and what have you learned from these meetings? I always tell people that when I work in Queen's University to my door in my office in Leicester House, about 104 miles, mm -hmm. but it's like years apart in understanding. Mm -hmm. And it's born out to me when I speak to people in Dublin who have never been to Belfast, who don't understand Belfast, who think we're all a bit crazy in the north, and they, they're really quite happy to keep us at arm length because yeah. they don't understand it. Yeah. And on a, on a similar vein, people in Belfast who've never been to Dublin mm -hmm. who are preoccupied with this notion that the bogeyman's waiting to come over the hill and take over the six counties and that they're not friendly. And the interesting thing is when I get people to travel either from Dublin to Belfast or vice versa, and I've had people in Leicester House, they come away and they say, well, the people were fantastic, they're really nice. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, what did you think? Mm -hmm. And that works both ways. They haven't got horns. <laughs> they haven't got horns and they're not going to bite you. Yeah. But the interesting thing is what... And I brought a, was up part of a, a group of independent centres. I brought them up to Belfast just to get a feel for what, what it was like in Belfast, what yes. the attitudes and opinions were. We had a long three or four hour session with business people and industry. Mm -hmm. And then the next morning we had a long session with politicians, civic leaders and uh, academics. And they were blown away by the difference in those two meetings. The senators were. Yeah, the mm -hmm. senators were. Now, they were blown away because they thought that business was very much focused on business and the economy and, and the Northern Ireland PLC performed well, whereas there was a nervousness within the political arena about about more of the optics about what this looked like. Uh -huh. I suppose that, that they were a bit concerned about that. Uh, but, you know, when, when they came up to Northern Ireland and they started to understand the subtleties of what goes on, they didn't, they never recognised a lot of the subtleties that we living in Northern Ireland also recognise about language, about emblems, about symbolism. Yes. And, uh, you know, so that was the passion, I think, the, 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 the passion that people held about clinging to their beliefs and their cultures. You know, they were impressed with that. Yeah. And it was interesting because uh, there was a second day that I was up, I actually sit on the, the withdrawal of the UK from the EU committee in Dublin. So it's effectively the Brexit committee. Uh -huh. And it's a Shannon Brexit committee. And we arrived up at Belfast with a full day, a really intense day of meetings. And then the last meeting was a, a meeting up the Newton Ard Road with a group called the Training Women Network. Okay. And I was, I was actually rushing back to Dublin. I had to get back for a committee meeting at seven. And I said to the 
the secretarial assistant, look, could I leave early because I'm really under pressure to get back? Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, Link, you'll stay and we need people to stay for this last meeting. Mm -hmm. So we stayed and we met the group of women. It was, it was really, it was really telling because actually that group of women were formed from a group of women who were both from the loyalist side and the republican side in Belfast and in Derry, Stoke London Derry. And they described themselves as wives and partners of combatants. So when the men folk, the males were off doing whatever they were doing in the middle of the troubles, these were women that were keeping the kids going to school and food on the table. Keeping the family together. together. And we, we listened intently that day when one, one woman told us about taking her son to an appointment to have been kneecapped. And one of the senators was with, looked at her and said, but why on earth would you take your son to be kneecapped? And with tears rolling down her face, and you could hear a pin drop in the room, she said, because if I didn't take him, he gets executed. And the senators were blown away with this. And they opened up and they shared a lot of stories about their, their, their direct impact in their lives. But the thing that I took away from that meeting was the one comment that one lady made. And she said that during the Troubles, the women were the glue that held society together. Yeah. The women were the glue 100%. that held the families together. Yeah. And in that vein, as much as those women were the glue that held society together, I think a key thing is those women will be the glue that will rebuild the blocks yeah. to rebuild society. You know, and I've always said, anyone I'm talking to, there's two components of this that I think will be key. It's firstly the women, as you mentioned, and secondly the young people. Mm -hmm. Because when I look at my kids and look at my friends' kids, my neighbours' kids, they're not interested if you're a Protestant or a Catholic. Mm -hmm. They want to get on with their lives. They yeah. can be very proud of their identity as unionists as nationalists yeah. as loyalists as republicans without feeling threatened by the other side and mm -hmm. i look at my kids and everybody else's kids who actually want to get on in northern ireland tell me this Ian, as a committee listening to these stories from business from farming sector from these women's groups what can you do now with the information that you heard and have been hearing what practical steps can you do to help I suppose make society better for everyone. I think I think you can give them a space and a platform to engage and talk to be comfortable to come out and make those feelings known without any fear of retribution mm -hmm. or criticism okay. from, from people within their, their own communities who say they're selling out. And and it was there was a, a very telling moment I had last Thursday when we were at the Angela Merkel meeting. I was very privileged to sit beside Kathleen Gillespie uh -huh. before and Kathleen Gillespie's background is that her husband was kidnapped uh, during the Troubles, was chained to the steering wheel of a, a van with a £1,200 bomb on board, was driven into an army checkpoint, the van was, uh, the bomb was remotely detonated, mm -hmm. he was killed along with I think five or six other soldiers at that time. Yeah. So, so this lady had lived through hell yeah. and when I spoke to her about exactly the thing we're talking about, about rebuilding, about the future, and I always have the position that, you know, if we're going to move on, at some point we have to draw a line and we, we have to give people the opportunity to move on. And for for some people, that'll, that will be about people walking the streets that they feel should be imprisoned or paying the price for being party to heinous crimes. And I said to Kathleen that day that I, because I lost no one directly in the troubles, have no right to make a call of that. But I was interested to hear, hear her opinion because she had the right to have an opinion. And Kathleen Gillespie turned around and said, look, we've got to move on. We have to get closure. We have to build the bridges. And when someone like that can say things like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and following on from that, I was, I, was, I was relating that conversation to 
a gentleman at a, at a meeting or a functions at a Friday evening, and he said to me that when he looked at the reporting that's going on at the moment about things like Bloody Sunday, Bally Murphy, he felt that in his opinion that, that we will get some closure in these things when the people of Bally Murphy say Bally Murphy was wrong, there were mistakes, but Kings Mills was wrong, and Oma was wrong, and then the Skillen was wrong. Mm -hmm. And when the people in Oma and in the Skillen can say Oma was wrong, mm -hmm. but so was Bally Murphy, yeah. and so was Bloody Sunday. He felt that that was part of the, the closure mechanism to acknowledge that there was pain in all things yeah. and hurt. I suppose that just leads me on to another question that I had for you, but now seems to be an appropriate time to ask it. Legacy. Can we somehow deal with the past Ian, and yet build for a future? I, I think we can. I think we must. I think we have to. Have to. And it's interesting that I have a younger brother who lives in Australia. Okay. Talk, talking about the weekend, we're talking about some of the stuff that was going on, and he told me that uh, one of the best quotes he heard this week was was a quote from, believe it or not, Winnie the Pooh. All right. From Winnie the Pooh, the A. A. Millen character, and the quote, the quote Winnie the Pooh said was, "I always get to where I'm going by walking away from where I've been. That's the way I do it." Mm -hmm. So you never thought you'd have words of wisdom from a character in a novel but uh, th there is some truth in that you know and I think there's, there was a Spanish philosopher that said that you know that those who can't remember the past are condemned to repeat it so I think when, when I look at my children who actually I, I keep telling people I was born in 68 68 was 23 years after the end of the Second World War for me as a young boy growing up in Armagh the Second World War was history was Hollywood it was a different time when I look at my kids who are 20 something, 20 years after the signing of the Good Friday mm -hmm. Agreement, similar time frame. Mm -hmm. For them, the troubles are history, it's newsreel, it's a different time. They don't really connect with it. Mm -hmm. And I'm immensely proud that that is the case that Absolutely. they don't. But it, we can't have their future held to ransom by the past. Mm -hmm. So we, and I say we, as older people who lived through horrible times, mm -hmm. have a responsibility to move on with a responsibility. Now, for those people who lost loved ones directly, on whatever side of this argument, you can never, ever ask those people to forgive and forget. Which, unfortunately, there was over three and a half thousand people uh, killed, and I would imagine double that, maybe more, if directly affected, wounded, whatever, living with post-traumatic stress disorder, etc. Yeah. Which is a, a large section of our community. Yeah. You know, it's it's. I suppose it's very difficult to say to them people, okay, let's draw a line, because we need to move forward in a progressive manner. It's very difficult to dismiss these people. I'm sure you would agree. For sure, and I would never ever want to dismiss them. But the interesting thing is talking to Kathleen Gillespie, and I have no doubt there are many other people like Kathleen Gillespie who's who've been to hell and back, who actually say this won't bring back my husband or my son or my brother or my partner and and with that in mind we need to move on mm -hmm. now i've no doubt there are people that will spend until their dying day trying to get some sort of closure through the legal process and truth is they're probably actually entitled to do that if that's what closure is for them mm -hmm. but i think there's not one defining thing that, that that illustrates closure for anybody yeah it's a very personal very individual thing yeah and i think you have to give people the space and the time and the respect mm -hmm. and it's a word that's used sometimes very glibly mm. but actually it's a very important word because for everybody it's, it's very personal yeah. what that entails 
Ian, Irish nationalists have been accused of using Brexit to forward the call for Irish unity. But is this fair, considering this has always been their aim anyway? I think when we look at the Brexit discussion and the Irish unity conversation, I'm probably this is nowhere to disagree with, but I actually do think it was quite opportunistic. I completely accept and, and respect that, that anybody as an Irish Republican you know, identifies with unified Ireland and, and one Ireland and the end of partition, which I completely respect and understand. I think actually the Brexit conversation and unification are two completely separate conversations. I would like to have seen the Brexit conversation come to a conclusion. That wouldn't have detracted from the, the other conversation about, about Irish unity, but I do think it was slightly opportunistic to drop this into the middle of a Brexit conversation. Because remember, the Brexit conversation has been so toxic in itself. Mm -hmm. It's so confused. There's so many mixed messages that all of a sudden, all of a sudden in a Northern Irish and a Southern Irish context, it throws in another level but of confusion. But, but I suppose the argument could be said that you should also, I suppose, remember that um, Irish Republicans have been looking to for the reunification of the country. It wasn't just two years ago when the vote in 2016 for Brexit. It wasn't 10 years before that. It's been a generation and a few generations. So, um, you know, it has always been a legitimate claim for Irish Republicans to want the reunification of the country. So I think the argument could also be said by people that are accusing Republicans of using this as some sort of a, you know, hijacking cause, yeah. shall I say, you know, that the, the level, the argument can be said that it is unfair to say that they are using this because it's always been there, you know? Yeah, no, no, I respect that. I, I understand that completely, I respect that, but I, I, you'd be rather naive to think that it didn't present a good opportunity to reinforce the notion, you know, but I, I understand that and respect it, and you make a good point that it's something that's been going on for a long period of time, so completely, you know, concur with that. When Brexit is done and dusted, Ian, will you support the call for a border poll? Uh, I've quite a strong opinion on this and it's interesting because I think we need to learn from Brexit. Mm -hmm. And what we learned from Brexit is completely ridiculous and crazy and foolhardy and irresponsible to ask people to make a big decision without having all the information. Mm -hmm. I think it would serve no purpose at the moment to have a Brexit poll because of exactly that reason. What I actually think would need to happen is we need to start and do serious pieces of work on what this would look like. And that's work that needs to happen in Belfast and in Dublin. It's charging academics and economists and business people and, and whoever else to look at what that would look like. And it's not something that you can rattle out. And I've, I've heard, I've read some of the weekend press where some people are proposing we put a date on a border poll to, to really drive this thing. I actually think that's unhelpful. Learn from what we learned from Brexit. My goodness, once you put a date in the calendar, you present yourself with a number of serious problems. You also run the risk of rushing something through. Mm -hmm. If we've learned anything about partition, if we've learned anything about division, if we've learned anything about asking people big questions, it's perfectly reasonable to ask them when they've all the information. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a process. But I think that, that to do it at the moment, in the absence of that, yeah. would actually create more problems than it's solved. If we've learnt anything from Brexit, 
it is one thing we need to do our homework and have a proper, yeah. open, honest, warts and all yeah. conversation. And, and you know, that, that economic appraisal may come back and say, actually, it doesn't make economic sense. Mm-hmm. But then you put, a, you put a cultural level on that, on cultural grounds, do you think it makes sense? So all of these questions have to be had. But the interesting thing is, when we look at the border poll, and, and remember I as an Ulster Unionist look at unification, and, and when I lived through all the years of the Troubles in South Armagh, that where symbols become so important and, and actually became weaponised. Mm-hmm. When, when I went to school, which is a Protestant grammar school, the language was used as a weapon against you know mm-hmm. a culture. Yeah. I grew up as a young boy in South Armagh where the flag of the Republic was used as something was anti-everything I stood for. So we've come through those quite toxic times. Yeah. So we've got to have the discussion. And you know the interesting thing is that for probably if you ask the question to most Ulster Unions today, Irish unity doesn't seem to have anywhere for them. Mm-hmm. And unification doesn't seem to have anywhere for them. And I understand, I can, I can sympathise with them. I completely understand <coughs> them. So the language is important. Mm-hmm. And the reality that it's something that must be inclusive for everybody Absolutely. is important. Because if you ever leave 500 people in Northern Ireland feeling that they're left behind, disadvantaged or not represented, we're going to end back end up back at square one in this discussion. Mm-hmm, 100%. From your experience, Ian, working in Dublin and the Senate this past year, have unionists anything to fear in a new Ireland from your experience this past year? Uh, my experience directly in the Senate, I would say that complete sincerity and genuineness. The Senate is populated with people have huge respect for the TDs and Senators. There are nationalists, there are Republicans in there, there are people who want unification. Yeah. Uh, have I detected much anti-unionist sentiment? Yeah. No, no certainly not. Uh, I detect a huge amount of respect. And as, as I say to many people, very often they look north and they're, they think we're a bit crazy and they can't really understand us. And actually, if you've lived in the south of Ireland, if you've lived in Cork or Kerry for your lifetime, whether you want to be partied up with us at the moment, I would question that. So at the minute, I never have detected anything in, in the Senate that would be a threat to my culture and my identity. What I've actually seen in the last year with the Brexit discussion is a group of people who wanted to work to get a resolution. People who said, we think it's crazy that the UK would leave. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to leave, we need solutions to some of these problems. Mm-hmm. And I spent my time fighting against this spin that I see through the English tabloid press and sometimes through the Northern Irish press mm-hmm. that Dublin and Brussels are conspiring against the UK because nothing, and I mean nothing, is farther from the truth. There are neighbours, there are allies, and this notion that they're, they're waiting to pounce is, or present any threat to me as an Ulster Unionist or, or my community is, in my opinion, completely misguided. I'm glad you cleared that one up for us. <laughs> Would you support Ian the call for an All Ireland Forum to discuss a new Ireland? Do you think it I, would be helpful? I, I've worked for 30 plus years in the agri-food industry. The agri-food industry for the last 20 years has functioned as all island bodies. Uh-huh. We've got companies that are boards of directors and management structures that straddle the border with, with plants north and plants south. Uh-huh. Agriculture, by the very nature of the business, working on the land and livestock and food, has to function that way. Mm-hmm. So I've seen a number of initiatives that work very successfully 
on an on an all island basis. Yeah. And remember, this is this is not a political statement. This no. is about actually what works. And what right. I see is that when we look at at food safety, we look at animal health, we look at veterinary medicines, we look at biosecurity. All those things currently have to work on an all island basis. Mm-hmm. I, because of my role in the Senate, was at the all island civic forums. I thought they were hugely successful. I think actually the reality is the things that impact and uh, either advantage or disadvantage people in the north or south of the border are the same. So mm-hmm. I think there is a, a, an opportunity to say, or a, a reason to say, yeah, that that discussion that works across the island of Ireland and that's inclusive for everyone certainly has merit. Mm-hmm. Just when um, you're on that, could you explain to me what the, what you do actually in your role as business development manager at the Institute for Global Food Security? Yeah, the Institute for Global Food Security was born out of a crisis in the UK called the Horsemeat Scandal. Oh, okay, yeah. So Professor Chris Elliott was tasked by the, the British government to do a government white paper on why we ever arrived at a horsemeat scandal. Uh-huh. And effectively it was about integrity in the food supply chain, about the safety of our food, about the integrity of the people that function that, and about cheap food. So on the back of that, Professor Elliott formed the Institute for Global Food Security, and fundamentally what it's about is we're linking agriculture, food, health and nutrition. The institute resides in the Faculty of Medicine, Health and Life Sciences. Uh-huh. So on a daily basis we talk to farmers and food producers, but we're also accessing doctors, clinicians and pharmacists. And is that across the island? It's, it's, it's in Queen's in the university here, but we're building, building links as we speak with Science Foundation Ireland and across the other universities because that makes sense. Yeah. Because if you combine this intellect and knowledge, mm-hmm. all of a sudden the sum of the, all the parts is, is much greater. Correct. So that, that's the space we're working in. And for Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, it's critically important because food safety, food integrity is going to be very important going forward. Absolutely. And the other component of it, because we're in the Faculty of Medicine, Health and Life Sciences, it's an obscenity, but it's a truth that more people in the world die today because of obesity than die of starvation. Yeah. And, and that is obscene. We think we're eating a healthy diet, we're actually not eating a healthy diet. Yeah. So to be in the university working in a forum where you have people working in, in agriculture and foods, it's a, it's a great job for myself. Mm-hmm. And part of my role is managing a big European project called EIT Food, European Institute for Innovation and Technology. Okay. So I've got 20 partners, 20 university partners across Europe, 30 big agri-food businesses and, and SMEs. And it's been linking the guys doing the fundamental science with the business people to really drive the adoption of technology, new processes, new thinking, on the food supply chain and the food ecosystem. Have you any exclusives for us? Why was horse meat introduced into the food chain? Have you got to the bottom of all this yet? And what measures have you put in place that will prevent it from happening again? The biggest problem is summed up in horse meat that when you went into your supermarket and you bought 12 burgers for a pound, you had to question what was in it. When I spoke to a sausage producer in GB who said the skin on his sausage cost more than the meat, you have to question what was contained. Seriously? But we could we could ramble on at this for hours. The skin on the sausage costs more than the meat. Putting in it, yeah. yeah, I think I don't think I want to hear much more about this to be honest with you. We'll we've move moved on. on we've moved on from that. Yes. It is integrity. Ian, there's a perception that the NHS is better than the southern equivalent. From your maybe limited experience, is that the reality, do you think? 
I, I think we've actually been blessed in Northern Ireland. I think we've a very good NHS. I think we're very quick to criticise it. I think we've become predisposed to having doctors on top 24-7, very close to where we live. I go back to my brother in Australia. If he's got a good hospital within a couple of hours, he thinks that's acceptable. Mm. Yeah, you know, so in Northern Ireland, we've become accustomed to having uh, a network of clinics and doctors and specialists on our doorstep. The budget, I suppose, won't extend that to keep that place in the future. I think that when I look south of the border, we're very fortunate that we have healthcare that's free at point of delivery because it means, irrespective of your socioeconomic background, you can avail of and have access to some of the best medical care, if not in Europe, in the world. Mm-hmm. Has the South, in your opinion, moved ahead of the North in terms of the economy, being a more liberal society and inequality in the likes? In a word, I think it has. I think when you look at the, the gross genetic product, when you look at uh, the businesses, the foreign direct investment, I think as we stand here today, yeah, the South have moved ahead. I look at Dublin of 20 years ago and I look at Dublin today, a very cosmopolitan international city. We have a huge amount of uh, international companies wanting to go to Dublin, Ireland to invest. Mm-hmm. And they see it as a, as a huge opportunity. So I think as, as we stand today, and remember we've had two years of this vacuum in Northern Ireland where we've had a, a, no executive sitting, quite a bit of apathy. So if I was a foreign direct investment business looking to put my money somewhere north or south of the border as we speak at the moment, it would be south of the border. But that's not to detract from the businesses that the good business that we have in Northern Ireland. There is a lot of opportunity, but we've got to move on from this stymied position we're in just at the moment. Okay. What have you achieved so far, Ian, and what has still to come from you? What have I achieved? Well, I suppose the first thing I say I've achieved still being here, I've been knocked unconscious three times in my life by virtue of a car accident, a farm accident, and a motorcycle accident. Oh. So. Right. By still being here, that's an achievement. Absolutely. By having three happy, healthy children here now, adults, that's also achievement. Mm-hmm. By having a good wife behind me is also achievement. So yeah. those have to be the, the, the first achievements. Yes. Uh, if we look at uh, if we look at life and business, uh, to have been president of Farmer Union was a huge accolade, yeah. huge responsibility, Certainly. and it's an honour to do that. And I think the, the icing on the cake is to be elected as a senator and senator. Mm-hmm. Very good. Who do you admire most in politics? Being truthful about it, I think that we're too quick to criticise our politicians. I admire anyone that gets involved in politics. Yeah. Because the one thing you recognise very quickly is that you need to be thick of the skin. Mm-hmm. And it actually, they're often berated and slated through the press and in the public. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of those people are good people trying to make a difference. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, there are some questionable characters involved in politics, but anybody that puts their hat in the ring and commits their life for a lot of their time to making change, I, they have made my admiration. Yeah. Very true. Finally, Ian, paint me a picture of your Ireland in 30 years then. My Ireland in 30 years is somewhere where I'm happy to live, my kids are happy to live, my neighbours' kids are happy to live. That's multicultural that has opportunity for those people that's peaceful and actually is less focused on flags and emblems and signage and colours than we currently are 
because I firmly believe, and I've very often said this to my family when we were younger, we travelled on holiday, and they'd say, oh, Dad, this is a brilliant place, we'd love to live here. And I'd always say to them, well, take away the sun, it's a wet, horrible, rainy day, would you like to live here? And they'd say, oh, no, home would be all right. Mm-hmm. So I think when we look at Northern Ireland and we look at the country we have, our best asset is our people. Yeah. And we have fantastic people, mm-hmm. as we do south of the border. Mm-hmm. So I think if you look at in a Northern Ireland context or a, an all-island context, we've got great, great people, we've a temperate climate with plenty of water. And remember, as I often tell people, wars used to be fought over land and territory. Mm-hmm. Wars will now be fought over information and data and may be fought over water. We've got a temperate climate. We have got access to water. We have infrastructure. Mm-hmm. We've got good people. Mm-hmm. Ireland in 30 years should be a fantastic place to live and work and bread your family. Let's hope we're around to enjoy it. <laughs> oh, we will. We, will. <laughs> we always like to um, finish off Ian with a, a very simple question. Um, if you could be anyone alive or dead for just one day, who would it be? But more importantly, maybe why? When you ask that question, I was wondering, were, you, were maybe you the person that I should be for a day, but I think it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, who would I? I wouldn't wish that from anybody. Well, you know what? I've always said to people, I'm quite happy to be me for that day mm-hmm. because I always say to my, my kids in the group, wanting the Ferrari is better than getting the Ferrari because when you get the Ferrari, it's never as good as you thought it would be. Then you'll want something bigger. You will. So if I was going to wish to be anybody for a day, it'd just be to be myself for a day. That's all right. I'll settle for that. Very good answer. I like that answer. One more answer, please, Ian. Potatoes, rice, or pasta? Potatoes without doubt. Potatoes without doubt. Coming from a farmer, you would have to say. <laughs> water or alcohol? I prefer a nice glass of glass of wine or a pint of Guinness, but a glass of water the next morning is useful. You can't have both now. All right, right, okay. Well, we'll, we'll go for the pint of Guinness. <laughs> Good man. Favorite food? Uh, has to be red meat. Red meat. Yeah. Again, coming from your farm, from back farm background. Yeah. Best film. Best film, probably, To Kill a Mockingbird is my favourite book, and I probably think I watched it actually on a plane lately, so the, the Gregory Peck and To Kill a Mockingbird, there's a lot of messages and a lot of good lessons in that one. This might be a slightly unfair question, but I'm going to ask it to Emily. Rugby, GA or soccer? Rugby. Rugby, yeah. good man. And I kept the most difficult question to the last for you, being a county Armagh man. What's the best county in Ireland? There's one fair county in Ireland. <laughs> and on that note, Ian Marshall, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. You've come across as a very sincere, genuine, honest man. And thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, it's been a pleasure.